0: everyone. Rebecca here. I just wanted to let you all know that the official Patreon page for How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident is now live. We're offering things like early access to episodes, video recordings of episodes, bonus content, and more. So head on over to patreon.com slash how the fuck to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Welcome to How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident? My name is Rebecca, and this is the podcast where I interview my friends and peers and now strangers to figure out, well, how the fuck they got to be so confident. In this episode, I chat with artist, consultant, and author, Beth Pickens. We talk about cultivating an unshakable soul acceptance, the benefits of seeing possibility models around you, what a death journal practice looks like, and so much more. This is How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident? with guest, Beth Pickens. Hello. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I did, you know, a little deep dive on you since we haven't officially met in person before and you're an artist consultant. So before we sort of dive into talking about confidence, can you explain to, to everyone what an artist consultant is and what you do? I mean, you're so many things. You're also an author. You're you're more than just an artist consultant. But when I saw that word, I was like, oh, I'm so interested in what that means.
1: Yeah, because the word consultant is kind of, it can mean everything and nothing. It's kind of empty. But basically (laughs) for me, I counsel artists. My background is in counseling psychology. I went to school to be a therapist, but I only wanted to work in the arts and with artists. So I counsel artists. I help them um, navigate their lives and their careers and their practices to sort of, get through life being this weird person that an artist sometimes is.
0: Wow. That is incredible. That is so up my alley for like what I need in my life. So on a personal (laughs) tangent, uh, we'll talk later, but that sounds incredible Um, because it's hard being an artist.
1: it's not easy. No, it's not easy. It's a very distinct way of being. And it's a very, you all are a very particular kind of worker because you're the only worker who works paying jobs in order to do the job you want to do and need to do. And that just makes, that's one of the ways that artists are just a little different than me and the rest of the world, that you have this job that you have to pursue for all these reasons. And maybe it'll pay, maybe it won't, but that you're doing all this other work to pay your life so that you can do the thing you really want to do.
0: Totally, totally, and I relate to that. It's just exactly that. It's like you don't. We don't have a choice. Like this is the thing that we like have to do. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna do it. Um, and you also have a uh, one book out or two books out now.
1: Oops. Yes, two books. My my second book comes out very shortly, April sixth. My first book came out in twenty eighteen,
0: and. I read that it's like the new artists. way. <laughs> That's what's right what I yeah, have. My,
1: my publisher wrote that. I don't know. There's no creative prompts in it, but basically I write, I write self-help books for artists. So when life just, batters them, they have a resource to help them navigate.
0: I'm so excited to get it because I have the artist's way, although I have yet to open it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it scares me. So I, I wonder your book might be, right up my alley and a lot of listeners alleys too one of the books that come to mind are have you ever heard the, of the van gogh blues before that
1: book The van gogh blues no but that's really so interesting
0: it's, like, it's about like artists battling depression and like mm. what that looks like and it was one of my favorite favorite books so i think it's called van gogh blues but maybe i'm butchering it now um okay so now that we know a little bit about you I usually start by saying, what does confidence mean to you? When you hear that word, like, what does that mean?
1: Mm. When I hear confidence, I hear, um, an unshakable soul acceptance.
0: That's like the best way I'm I take notes. So unshakable soul acceptance. And like, does that just mean, accepting yourself for who you are and all that comes with it, the goods, the bads, everything. Yeah. I I
1: think think confidence is like a one day at a time practice to just be who I am today, knowing that that will change and continue to change. It's, I think confidence is like accepting me today and accepting all my past selves for who they were too, and anticipating that I'll accept all the future selves.
0: Oh, that's, that's so wonderful. Do you consider yourself a confident person? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and have, you always, have you always been a confident person, even back into childhood? or No, is way. This-
1: no way. I don't think anyone okay. socialized female in any culture in modernity was always confident. But you know what? The outside world probably would have thought that I was, because I, I think I probably had an exterior that suggested that. Um, sometimes I think Uh, like a fuck you for young people can be misinterpreted as confidence but no Mm. I definitely was not when I was younger I think maybe more so than some of my peers I would come to learn later but no.
0: where did you grow up did you grow up in California
1: no I grew up right outside of Pittsburgh Pennsylvania
0: and are you an only child or you have siblings
1: I had I had an older brother who died four years ago and I have a younger half brother who's much younger than me
0: I'm so sorry I I I am so unbelievably sorry for your loss. And that is not helpful. And that is not, uh, there there are no words to say for that. I just wanna recognize it and um, I'm just so sorry. Uh, um, So you grew up with some siblings then, Um, youngest, oldest?
1: I, uh, my older brother was three and a half years older than me. And then my okay. younger brother, my half brother was born when I was like 17, I didn't grow up with him. So it was just, oh, it was just me and my older brother, but I was the sort of young adult in the family for sure. Oh. So I would have seemed like the older sibling, even though I was really <laughs> definitely,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. Um, Did your parents instill confidence in you? Is that something that they sort of wanted you to have? Or did they maybe value, they valued other, other (laughs) attributes?
1: I don't know what my parents valued. Um, They were just like, they were really broken young people. Like my parents had Mm -hmm. my brother, my mom was 17 when he was born Mm -hmm. and 21 when I was born. They were just really young and like um, both dropped one graduated high school early, one dropped out of high school. So they didn't really have lives that kind of instilled any confidence in them so I think it was something I definitely had to learn I came to confidence through uh, as a younger person definitely like looking up to other people who ended up always being artists and weirdos mm. and like people who were who now what I understand they were reflecting back at to me to me was sort of like feminist values and queer people but I didn't have language for it at the time when I was young sure. but now confidence is not come from my parents unfortunately but I could find it in other people
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting thing too is like surrounding yourself with confident people can in turn help you build your confidence, right? Especially growing up as an adolescent. Um, Did you experience anything growing up that like sort of shook your confidence and then helped you build it back up? Or was confidence not even something that you sort of tackled until after you graduated high school?
1: Oh yeah, I think I came of age in the 90s which I think like pre-internet I didn't have email till I went to college like it, I was I'm from this micro generation that's called zennials or generation catalana which I really identify with <laughs> and it's people who um were born like 77 to 81 like so we all like became adults before social media right weren't on the internet really until we were in our young adulthood um and so i think in the at least the 90s culture i was experiencing as a teenager it was like the cool women who seemed confident were also like um how to describe it just so demure and flat like flattened by the world around them um definitely the namesake um uh, my so-called life angela chase on my so-called life just no confidence whatsoever just but yet that was like a role model for me I don't know um yeah the sort of like not just strong or powerful because that's not always confidence I always think confidence is something that is like I said kind of the soul quality and Mm -hmm. I didn't see that around me as a young person very much certainly not in other girls and women me Um, either I think I see a lot more examples of that now. It'd be interesting to hear from like somebody much younger, whether that translates in media as confidence or something else, maybe it's sales. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I feel the same way. Like I said, like when I was, I think I was like 15 when I went to Lollapalooza for the first time, I remember my grandparents dropped me off cause I couldn't drive yet. Oh. And I remember going to a, um, a NARAL, the, uh, abortion rights organization mm-hmm. Narel of pennsylvania had a table there and i joined and that was probably like the first thing that i ever did that like instilled this thing of like i'm part of something bigger i'm part of like a movement and uh, that was probably a seed of something that would eventually become feminism whenever i went to college and had access to you know women's studies and feminist studies
0: how old were you when you went to
1: that i had it been 14 15 i couldn't drive yet
0: yeah, but that's still like
1: a big move
0: for like a 14 or 15 year old to be like, oh, I'm gonna join part
1: of this organization. Oh, totally, and, I uh, mailed in my $10 check. I think I had to get a like, check from my mom because I certainly didn't have checks.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's huge for a 14 year old. I I was definitely not doing that at 14. Like that's a big, that's a big, bold, confident move. Um, were you involved like in, in clubs and stuff at school or were you just like, no, nah, I'm not interested?
1: It was, I played sports. I was like a cheerleader and played softball when I was in junior high. And then, um, I don't know, I think I was like in art clubs. I kind of bounced around different things. Nothing very consistently.
0: Yeah. So then you graduated and then, and then, or I'm assu- did you graduate high school? And then?
1: Yeah. And then I went to and college. Then- I was the first person in my family. I, so I was like, I knew nothing about college except things that I had seen in movies in the 80s yeah. and 90s about college. So I had like no idea what college would be. Yeah. um but i moved to columbia missouri to go to the Uni- university of missouri i thought initially i was going to study journalism and they have this infamous journalism school there which i quickly changed my major right away but as soon as i got to college i think that was that was also sort of a strong track in building confidence cuz where i grew up was a very depressed place too economically depressed very low kind of education it was just a very depressing place still kind of is in my opinion um mm-hmm. and so when i went to this new place and was suddenly surrounded by peers from all over and there was a much higher ceiling i just felt like freedom and possibilities and that i could pursue things and be good at them and that was like a that was a good thing to do not make yourself small but like see how big you could be yeah, Is that
0: is that like in line with sort of independence, like getting independence at, uh, is part of building your confidence or like what words would you use to describe like why college helped with your confidence?
1: I think when we're in our families of origin and in our communities of origin, we are not always having ourselves reflected back at us um, accurately because for one totally. thing, families, parents, whoever's raising you, they, I think they can have a hard time engaging with you as you are now. So when I moved to college at age 18, everyone that I was meeting only knew me as I was presenting now. They didn't have any previous story or narrative of who I was. And so I think having myself reflected back at me accurately and it helped sort of destabilize old stories I had about myself that like I sucked I was like wait a second all these people really like me and they're all really cool so ergo maybe I'm okay too that sort of cracked open the long narrative from the community of origin that I came from that there was something about me that was just infinitely not okay which is just what it felt like always
0: yeah which says a lot about like you know because not everybody can move out of their place of origin you know and then it's like you know, how do you build confidence if you're still in the same place that you were in, which there's nothing wrong with that. Like, how do you build confidence if you're still in the same place that you were when you grew up? You know, it's like a different different when you move into a different city and you can sort of start over and yeah, or and find people identity. who
1: are who are like you. I mean, there was also for for me a big part of it was there was no queer vi- visibility where I grew up. Again, it was it was like that cusp right before the internet, and so mm-hmm. no high school had a gay straight alliance or like a queer right. student. Nothing. There was nothing. Right. There were no gay people around me at all, and so going to college and meeting a ton of queer people and having like queer elders in my life. That was significant too.
0: Yeah, that is huge. Cause I didn't, I also didn't go to a school that had any sort of LGBTQIA affiliations or clubs or groups or anything like that. Um, do schools have things like
1: that now? I think so. I mean, it's probably not ubiquitous everywhere, but definitely right. a lot of, I think a lot of people who went to school in the 2000s over the past 20 years had a very different experience of queer visibility and advocacy. Whereas when I was a, a growing up, it was just like homophobia and jokes. Like that was, yeah. that was kind of yeah. all that was available. Totally.
0: totally. <laughs> That's so, that's so, I didn't even, I guess I haven't really just thought about like what high school is like for kids now, but that that's so cool that there are organizations and clubs, obviously not everywhere that sort of, um,
1: when there's like out teachers, which there definitely wouldn't have been when I was in high school. And I'm sure I had gay and lesbian teachers, but nobody was out. There were no out adults around me anywhere until I went to college.
0: So it's like, you can't,
1: I think confidence is also seeing possibility models, which is a phrase that I hear from this um, really wonderful thought leader named Sabrina Hersey Issa. I follow her and I read her newsletter and she she talks often about possibility models for living. And I think one way we develop confidence is when we see like that there's actually paths that make sense to us that resonate in our hearts that somebody has lived. I, I And I've been thinking about this a lot, just speaking of Queer people. I just read this really great book that is blowing up and getting tons of love. And it's called Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. And she's a trans writer. And this novel is like, I think, one of the first really big mainstream publisher books by a trans woman. And in the book, the, the one of the narrators is like a 30-something white trans woman in New York, and she's talking about how um, there's this change in generation among trans women that a, a previous generation, there was no possibility model. Everyone died. They worked in the streets, they tried to live, and they died really young. And now there's this kind of newer generation of trans women who maybe have more choices. And so I think choices and seeing models for living also is how we develop confidence. When you when we have any kind of identities that the world is just battering from the start, I think part of confidence is you actually have to see people who make you think of you that are actually living and thriving. And that has not been possible for so many people.
0: So many people. I mean, I've had so many different people on this podcast and it's been so wonderful to talk to people from all different facets of life, but I, it's a common thing to hear, you know, Uh, queer people, people of color, not seeing themselves reflected in the world around them and how that's not helpful for confidence. You don't see anybody like you succeeding. So then you don't think it's possible to succeed. Um, And I can't remember what I was going to say that was on that note, but like, yeah, it's huge. It's huge to be able to see that. I can see how you must deal a lot with artists who feel that way, because I know a lot of people is on this podcast and what I've experienced from their family is like, you can't be an artist that doesn't make any money. Like, how are you going to make money? being? You can't like, just kind of like poo poo what you want to do. And so then you go, okay, I guess I can't do it. I don't see anybody around me who's an artist or an actor or a writer. So I guess I should just get a business degree. I don't know. Right. So I'm sure that's something you see a lot in what you do too.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, most artists aren't coming of age in families, schools, and communities where they're told, yes, pursue that. Be an artist. This is a viable life. Or even if they have families that can say that, being an artist is still a punchline in our culture, even though our culture demands art and content, but we don't want to support the people who make it, or very Mm -hmm. rarely and only in certain sectors. So artists have, I I can have a real imposter syndrome about their choices and really second guess them all the time and it's really, it's really hard to be an artist and my working definition of artists and the the theoretical underpinning of my consulting practice is that artists are people who have to have their creative practice because it's how they make sense of being alive. It's how they communicate. It's how they process information. It's how they live. It's how they see the world. And if they aren't engaging that part of themselves, their life quality will really deteriorate. And I see that in artists all the time. And so the difficult equation is, so how do you live like a rounded adult life that has taking care of yourself, having community and family, taking, having jobs, having goals and families and all these things and having your practice, your creative practice. And that is difficult equation for every artist no matter their discipline and that equation changes throughout their career too.
0: Yeah I've never heard that articulated in such a way that resonates with me fully as that as what you just said that is so exactly what how I feel and just can't articulate it as as well as you just did um and I'm sure tons of listeners are artists as well and feel the same way um So you went to school, did you, you said you were going to go for journalism? And I then got, yeah, switched. I got my
1: undergrad degree in English, which was like, haha, what are you like? I don't have no idea what to do with that. And um, yeah. so I w- I was working at the university right after I graduated. It was so funny. I graduated just a few months before 9 11, which was a really mm. weird year to graduate. I'm sure everybody's graduation year feels weird. Like everybody's graduated in 2020. I was like, what the fuck? Right. But yeah. I graduated yeah. 2001, right before 9 11, and I was planning on going to the Peace Corps. And that was thwarted first by um, a health scare. And I, I had like this cancer scare and I had to get a job that had health insurance because I was just like on my own at 22. Right. And, and so I got a full-time job at the university um, that I had just graduated from so that I could have health care. And um, I knew I couldn't go to the Peace Corps. And then 9-11 happened. And I was like, I don't, maybe the Peace Corps is over. I don't know what's happening. It was so destabilizing. And so I decided I'm going to get a master's degree while I'm working at this university because it's a lot cheaper for employees, and I need to do it in something that seems like it leads to a job, like it needs to be something that's like really tangible. And I I was working in a women's center at the university that had a really strong um, counseling program. So all of these women who were getting their master's and PhDs in counseling psychology were seeing clients at this women's center. And that was, it was something that I always thought of about maybe being a therapist or doing something in the helping fields. Um, yeah. So I got my master's degree in counseling psychology while I was working at the university there.
0: That's a lot in a short period of time to go front, to go through a cancer scare, a health scare, a world tragedy and be employed and get your master's. Um, That's a lot. Oh my God.
1: I feel so tired. When I think about what I did in my twenties, I was working full-time, working part-time and I was in graduate school. And now I'm like, no wonder I'm tired. I just, I only want to work like four hours a day now. I can't, I think I used up most of my work, my work in life in my twenties working really low wages, but yeah, Yeah. it, it, it was a lot. But, and then, but that was my sort of. Part, that was a trajectory that would lead me on. And, and after that, I, I knew I wanted to go live in San Francisco because I wanted to be in a giant queer community. I'd lived in a red state by then for 10 years, and I felt like I just need to go be where queer people are in charge of things. And so <laughs> I applied for a million jobs in San Francisco, and I got one, and I, I moved to San Francisco in 2007. And I lived there until um, 2014 when I moved down to LA, but that's where I started working just in the arts.
0: Do you identify as a, as a queer person?
1: Yes. Yes. I'm a lesbian. Okay,
0: yeah. Oh, okay. And with, like, what was that journey like with, with confidence? Cause I can imagine it sounds like you came from a small town and then you blossomed and found yourself in college, but then you had to go through these health, this health scare. And then you moved to San Francisco where you could see other like-minded people around you. I just wonder about everybody's journey with their sexuality and with who they are and coming into themselves and how that has affected your confidence. I think
1: I think it was artists um my in my my first book not to be like in my first book, but there's an anecdote in my first book that speaks to this exactly. In my first book is called Your Art Will Save Your Life. And in it, I have this anecdote about when I was was 15, the Andy Warhol Museum opened in Pittsburgh. And I was there for the opening with my neighbor who was an artist. She took me to the opening and I researched Andy Warhol. And this was again before the internet. So Andy Warhol wasn't ubiquitous the way he is now. Mm. His, his imagery is everywhere now, like in any target. You could by 30 things that have Warhol art. That wasn't true in the mid-90s. And Pittsburgh certainly wasn't an art hub city, even though it had a lot of big museums, but he's from Pittsburgh. And so it was mm. a big deal to have this contemporary art museum open there. And so mm. I, I was there for the opening, which was at midnight, and it was filled with freaks like John Waters was there and all these drag oh. queens. It was this huge celebratory parade of freaks and weirdos and queer people and artists. And I looked around and I was like, oh my God, like this is incredible. This is exactly what I want. This is exactly like this makes sense. I feel like this is the world I'm supposed to be in. I don't know how to get to that again, but I think if I just get out of here, I can find this again one day. And so eventually getting to San Francisco, it it was sort of that trajectory is complete of getting to be where all the artists were, all the queer artists who'd been making the films and books and music that I was sucking up through my teens and twenties that helped reflect me back at me which I think, again, having reflections of you back at you is what helps. It's like that first step to confidence is the the first step is you exist. You, you actually, what you feel like and are is real and true. And it's being reflected back at you. And I think that's kind of like a, the first cement block of confidence on the inside is just knowing that you exist.
0: Yes. Well, how, then I go, okay, well then how, if you are not you know, in a city where you see yourself reflected, how can you still build your confidence? How can you continue to be an artist and build your confidence if you're living in a place that you don't see yourself reflected in?
1: I think you got to get the fuck out. Like you got to run yeah. away. You have to <laughs> You have to change your life. I mean- that's hard. My my friend who is one of these writers who who did this for me, my friend Michelle T, who's a major queer writer and has helped create like a whole generation of of queer writers in a queer literary movement. And she wrote this great essay one time that's floating around the internet. It wasn't published anywhere. I think it was just like on a blog or something. But it yeah. was it was advice to young writers. And one of mm-hmm. the things was if you live somewhere that's stifling you just like, you got to get out of there. You've got to like figure it out. You got to run away or you got to save a bunch of money and leave town with a friend, but you got to go to the places to be with the people you want to be with, which is really hard. And then she answered it in that essay by saying, but this is your life. Like you only get one of these, you have to go. And that like, that brings up so many questions about gentrification in cities and cities not being affordable and migration and who can go where and the blocks that make moving to be with the people you want to be with difficult but I think young people are the people best equipped to do that because you have the most energy and um can live in the most appalling conditions that as you get older you will be unwilling to live in (laughs) so it's like if you're in a place that is just uh, smothering you and your spirit you have got to get out
0: yeah yeah I, uh, that is such a good point. And then you're exactly right. And then we go into the whole world of cost of living, gentrification, uh, healthcare. I mean, not having universal healthcare, all of that plays a factor into being able to move and get into the place where you see like-minded people and you see yourself reflected in the community around you. Um, Did you go through anything in your adult life that shook your confidence and If so, how did you deal with that and rebuild that part of you? Hmm.
1: I mean, totally like big trials, tiny trials, whether it's like a one-star review from a troll on Goodreads or Amazon, like that will totally Mm. (laughs) shake my confidence if I look at it. I, I think being in the wrong profession, the job I moved to San Francisco for back in 2007 was in health and human services. And that was just wrong. And I knew I needed to work in the arts and with artists. And that was like a hard, I mean, I had to just figure it out and make big changes, but that really shook me. Cause I was like, Ooh, I, I hate this life so much. I have to get out of it. Like what I'm yeah. doing for money. I, I can't, I can't stomach yeah. um, definitely putting out books. I mean, nothing has given me more empathy for my clients than publishing my books and putting big projects out into the world for public scrutiny, which is what artists do all the time. And it's one of the hardest things of being an artist is making things and then putting them in the world and at that vulnerability of making something. And then it sort of doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to your Mm -hmm. audience and the public, especially the internet can really batter people. And so I think That, that was really hard, like, but, but in a useful way where, like I said, it gave me such a deeper sense of empathy for what my clients go through of making their stuff and putting it in the world.
0: Yeah. So then when you get like, whatever, a one-star review, whoever the fuck that toll was, um, what do you do? How do you come back from that? What, how, whether it's even just like, a, like, oh, well, I give myself the night to cry. And then the next day I get up and go back in my r- routine. Or is it like I journal or is it time or like, what do you do to come back from that?
1: it's usually talking to all my friends who are writers Mm. and artists and just having them remind me like, no, 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 never look at that. Never look at that. These people's opinions are none of your business. That is not your community. Those are not your real readers. (laughs) Like anybody who hates what you do, that's not your audience, your audience. It's the people who want what you do. So it's just like having the, the basic stuff that I know cognitively I have to have that reflected back at me by other people. So whenever I get really shaken, it's usually other people who can help bring me back down.
0: Yeah. that's It's so important to have a community around you that can give you that. Um, Do you, so in doing this podcast, the topic of not being attached to outcomes Mm. comes up a lot. And, you know, reveling in the process rather than being attached to an outcome. Are you? Do you consider yourself like good at that? Are you good at not being attached to an outcome, or is that something that you have to practice?
1: That's a muscle I think that gets stronger yeah. every day through practice, and then it will um, erode, and I have to build it back up. But one thing, yes, I, I I think because this is something again I talk with my clients about all the time is doing the stuff that is in with within our power, and then turning it over and seeing what the results are because. We, we have this illusion of control that we can control outcomes. We cannot, we can't control people, places or things. And so for my clients or for my own books, it's sort of like, well, what part do I have? What's my part? My part is to write the thing, do the best job I can for who I, who I am and when I am, when I made that thing, help it be in the world, meaning help like get it out, help people know about it, help people find it and then let go, let, then detach. Because for every work, every book, every film, every performance, The audience brings their whole lives to that experience. And so what someone connects with or doesn't connect with, it has to do with their day in their life. It has nothing to do with my control or my intent of what I hope they will get. So um, I get to practice that all the time, which is great, again, to be on the other side of what I'm saying to my artist clients day after day.
0: Yeah. So when did you make the leap to go, okay, I'm quitting this job and I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I'm going to write my own books and I'm going to start my own business. How did that transition happen? And, and just how did that feel? How did that affect your confidence?
1: I, so in 2008, I left that job where I was directing a breast cancer program because I, I just needed to work in the arts and with artists. I just knew that's what I needed. And so basically I asked, several i asked someone to be my mentor somebody who was um Mm. doing a lot of fundraising for queer arts in san francisco and i asked him if he would like teach me how to do that how to fundraise for artists and he said yes because nobody had asked him before and then um i asked people for jobs i asked the queer cultural center in san francisco if they had anything open that i would do anything for them and they had just had somebody quit and they offered me a job and then someone else offered me a job so i started piecing together work in the art world And then when I started my consulting business 11 years ago, um, I had helped found and run a queer artist writers retreat in Mexico that went for five years. And the very first year we were there in 2009, um, I was the person who did the administration, buying groceries, cooking dinner, driving people from the airport. I was doing all the admin and support. And we would have these big communal dinners that I would make. And all the writers and artists every night would talk about just what was going on in their lives and their careers and where they were stuck and and help that they needed. Like, how do you get an agent or how do I write a book proposal? Or I'm really stuck in my book. They were just kind of talking about these different things. And while I was making dinner, I had this light bulb go off of like, wait, I'm trained in therapy. Like I could help all of these people. I know what to do with them all. And so as soon as we got back, I started offering services to a few clients, a few artists in my in my sphere saying, you know, I'm going to start doing this consulting thing that might help you. We'll do fundraising and we'll talk about your life and your career and figure out how to move all these things forward. And that's evolved over the past decade plus into into the practice that I have now. But it was essentially taking this, all of my experience working in the arts with this counseling training that was kind of lying dormant, but I had a lot of student loan debt. And I was like, God, why did I get that master's degree of all the student loan debt? And it just turned out I hadn't activated yet, but it, it finally in around 2010, I realized, oh, I can bring it all together into this job that I love and not have a boss because <laughs> I can't I work love- for anyone. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I know me either. Um well, I, I tried I it doesn't
1: work. Was listening to an episode of your podcast where you said you're a Capricorn. I too am a Capricorn.
0: Are you on what what's the day?
1: January 15th.
0: Oh, so you're like you're almost a what's after Capricorn?
1: It's a Aquarius.
0: Oh, so you're like kind of cool because it's like the what, the 20th or something? I think it it's dangerous?
1: the 21st or something, but no, I'm okay. very Capricorn. You're like very Capricorn? Okay. I'm not free at all. I have no Aquarian free spirit in me whatsoever. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, I was going to say that it sounds like you want, well, first of all, I was going to say, I love when life's like little breadcrumbs add up and it just is, that's kind of, that's what the feeling I got when you were, when you were talking about that, when you were like, Oh, I, I don't like, why do I have this master's? And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I have it so I can do this thing. And but like you didn't know that before, but now it's on un- it's revealed itself to you. And I just I whenever that happens in life, I always am just shocked. I and, know, I know like of course the magic of the universe. But yeah, um, it has its
1: own timeline and it's not my timeline. Totally.
0: And and that's like another thing that we have to accept too, is that like the universe has its own timeline and that's just the way it is. Um, that doesn't mean you can't work towards your goals, but it just means, you know, practicing more non-attachment is kind of key. Um It sounds like you took that step to become this entrepreneur, this artist consultant, a published author, because you, one, took a leap, and two, you asked a lot of questions, asked, you know, can you be my mentor? Do you have, like, you reached out, you, you know, took whatever fear you might, maybe you didn't have fear of reaching out, but I know a lot of people do have this fear of like, oh, I don't want to be a burden, I don't want to... You know, I don't want to put extra stuff on this other person's plate. They're doing me a favor, but you didn't let that stop you from asking for what you wanted. And that is also what I, I listened to your podcast, which is so great. Cause it's just like little nuggets of they're like all less than 10 minutes. I think from yeah, what they're I was very
1: short was episodes to.
0: and it's so digestible. And I love that. It's just like these little nuggets of of wisdom, but I was listening to the most recent one that talked about asking for what you needed. And I'm just curious on on how you cultivate that because it's scary for a lot of people and especially artists who just want to make their art.
1: Yeah, asking for things is really hard and really scary for people. It's a whole chapter in my new book is about asking. Mm -hmm. And I think first, even knowing that you have needs or wants or desires and that you don't have to figure them out on your own, that other people can help you. And in fact, other people have gotten help this mythology, the ridiculous bootstrap mythology of our culture teaches people to think that they have to figure out everything on their own. And A, no, you don't. And B, nobody else did either. (laughs) You You don't have to do anything alone. And I give my clients homework all the time about asking. I will ask them to identify like, who are five people in your sphere that you could ask tomorrow for this thing that we're talking about? Or that practicing asking, sort of seeing like this big ball of energy that we're we're um, taking from and giving back to this reciprocity of I give help, I ask for help, I give help, I ask for help, and not have it be just one directional. But yeah, for some reason, I think wired into me my scarcity from growing up Working class was that I w- would always ask for a job because I had a fear mm. of not having any money to take care of myself. So yeah. that was that's always been one f- like field, one area where I was fearless was just asking for work. Because so I was like, well, I got to work, I got to have jobs, and I've always right. had I always had a million jobs when I was young, and so that was a place where I was fearless. And I will tell people all the time now, and I realize that that that's not ubiquitous. That was something that was specific to me but that you can ask people for, for work. <laughs> if, if there's a place that you love and you wanna work there, you should like earnestly tell them how much you love them and that you want to work there and you'll do anything to work there, which is how I got this job at this queer cultural center. And I eventually became the managing director, but it was just like expressing, I really value what you do. I've been watching your programs for years. I would love to come work with you. And then it was just, yeah. it was luck. It was timing, the executive director executive director was like, well, actually our administrative person just quit. We could use help um but so yeah asking for things and then asking for things over and over also we develop that muscle of detachment again of sometimes we'll ask and we won't get what we want or it won't turn out the way that we want but that again the power that we have is to ask that's what's in our control we don't have control mm-hmm. over whether the person will do the thing or if they mm-hmm. do the thing whether it will result in the outcome we wanted but the thing we get to practice over and over is asking for what we want
0: yeah and you were you mentioned a little bit about homework, and then it it reminded me of the homework club that you have, which is accountability for artists. Um, what
1: is that? And so it's a club and it's a subscription model. So it's $15 a month. And basically on the first of the month, people get homework. I give them very specific homework. They get a handout and um, there's a workshop every month on a particular topic. And people are put into accountability pods if they want. Um, and there's audio extra credit. It's a different artist every month who gives them a creative prompt if they're feeling stuck or they want to loosen up in their practice. And it's, it's really cool. I love it so much. It's just because my consulting practice, I can only have about 60 clients at a time. So one reason I write books. That's a lot. Yeah. But that, but that's still, it's, I, the requests for consulting is beyond my capacity most of the time. So um, one reason why I have the homework club and make a podcast and write books is then the tools I offer can go to a, a much wider range of people than what my consulting practice can handle.
0: Yeah. Wow, that is you're busy. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. That's incredible that's like an incredible service that I've never heard anybody offer before for artists. Yeah. Um, I,
1: I just kind of made it up based on what I loved and what I knew how to do, which was counseling and artists. I love artists, I love counseling. I'm gonna put those two things together under, under one roof and see what
0: happens. <laughs> I love it. I've never met, I've never met anybody that does that. And it is sounds, inc- I mean, it sounds incredibly valuable. Um, I'm very excited to do it's more research so fun. into, into it's you so and fun. your book, get your books. And I'm just so excited. Um, I also noticed when I was listening to your podcast, you talked a little bit, well, you were like recapping and you mentioned death, God, and grief. And I'm very curious about how that ties into your work and how it ties into artistry and Maybe confidence will come up. Maybe it won't. But I'm just interested in. I, I wrote down those three words when I was listening, and I was like, "Oh, how is that related?" Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that.
1: I think, well, in all of art history, death and God and grief are kind of the main things people have been making art about for thousands of years. That's what art was was trying to understand: God in the afterlife, or exalting that culture's God, or grappling with death um, and the grief related to that. And so it, it makes sense in kind of an art history perspective, because this is what art yeah. has always been is death and God. And in my book, I write about death and God because, well, for one thing, I am a big fan of the death positive movement in, mm. in America. And this actually ties directly to confidence for me. So I have a lot of different death practices one of which is I keep a daily journal where I just take a pause to acknowledge that I'm going to die. I have to die, that all beings have to die. And it's this regular practice that sort of brings me closer to my mortality and acknowledging it. And what that does is it helps me reflect on, so how do I want to live? Who do I want to be? Am I mm. do? Am I living? Am I the person I want to be? Am I living how I want to live? Am I am with the people I want to be with? It sort of encourages just regular reflection on so how am I living I have to die so how am I living and that really helps with detaching really helps with letting go of outcomes and keeping myself right size I think it really helps connect me to confidence because the stuff of the world that shakes loose our confidence all the time like social media or feeling like on any given day I don't look the way I should look or I don't have enough of this or I have too much of that all of the daily things a regular death practice helps those things get smaller.
0: Mm, yeah. Yes. So regular death practice meaning for you, it means journaling. Is that like I've never heard of um I can't remember what, I maybe you just called it death practice the movement. death
1: positive death positive movement. Death positive. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
0: I have never heard of that. So. Oh my God.
1: It is incredible. so there's a really there's a really great organization based in the US called the Order of the Good Death. And it's a collection of writers and thinkers and artists and and, um, death professionals, death care professionals who advocate for death acceptance because american dominant culture is very death we have a lot of death refusal and death denial and that leads to like war and greed and all kinds of other things (laughs) environmental degradation and that when when people are closer when we're not so divorced from death and our own mortality that we make more conscious choices and so i Mm -hmm. listen to a lot of i do a death class i listen to a lot of death focused podcasts i read about death all the time i do a lot of different death things in my life and i i honestly think that is directly connected to confidence. I know I'm gonna die. I encounter that, I think about that all the time, not in a morbid way, not in a goth way, although I love goth, but this is really just as a way to be honest with myself so that I can live more honestly and be the person like, so what's scary to me about dying? Everything. Like dying is, that's like the thing we, we humans have always been trying to either avoid or understand again throughout art history. But so if I if I have to accept this inevitability, then it just, like I said, the flip side of that is, well, how am I living? Like that's something I have power over one day at a time. Like, how am I living? Yeah.
0: This is so, this is resonating with me in such a uh, a big way. I lost a friend. At the end of 2020, um, oh, at so the age sorry. of 20, thank you. At the age of 28, um, and the last—I mean, ever since then has been a real struggle. I, I've never experienced a—you de- know—a death. I mean, you know, of, maybe of grandparents and things like that, which is it, is hard. But when it's an unexpected mm-hmm. accident of a young person, it's very different. And I—I I know you mentioned. Losing your brother, who I'm assuming was a young person as well. And, you know, I don't know how to deal with it. It's my mm-hmm. first. So, so, hearing you speak of all this, it very much resonates with me. And I'm sure it resonates with a lot of people because there's been a lot of loss in 2020, mm-hmm. whether it's loss of life, loss of job, lo- loss of home, you mm-hmm. know, and Having death, having had a death recent to me, all of these thoughts come up daily, but I'm assuming as time passes, it's not going to be as immediate, um, those thoughts. So having this death practice, death journal, death positivity seems really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I am just very interested in, in this and I'm, I'm definitely going to do some research on it because it seems
1: very helpful. Um, well, and you're, the acute grief that happens after death, especially unexpected, especially somebody who's very young, that acute grief, because you mentioned grief earlier, and I have a yeah. chapter in my book on grief, because grief yeah. is, again, one of the things that artists, especially contemporary artists I love, one of the subjects I love most is, is grief and how people move through grief, which is so much of art, you're seeing a person grapple with grief and i think that's one of the most generous things artists do is actually give us a way to feel our own grief and move through it through their artwork yeah and so artists have to work so hard to to do that themselves like they have to they have to access their grief and make work about it which is very difficult and then share it with the world which is very difficult but it, I, I've had so many, in the book I write about, actually when my brother died, I was like totally numb. I could feel nothing for months. And then my wife and I were in New York going to see a lot of art. And we went to this uh, particular show on Broadway. and it like unlocked, it like unlocked, it moved the plug of grief that was inside of me. And I just sobbed and I was like, oh my God, I haven't felt anything for months. And if it hadn't been the work that I saw, I don't know how much longer it would have just been stuck inside of me, but artists make all these different kinds of work that help move feelings through us.
0: Oh my God. I just got goosebumps when you were saying that. Um, yeah, I, that was the only, that's the only thing that has helped me deal with grief is making art. I mean, I just have project after project ideas on the wall that you can't see right now that have all come from grief. And I've worked harder towards these projects because they have so much meaning for me. And, um, I love that you just spoke about feeling like the plug was unplugged after you watched this show. Uh, cause I hope to do that. I hope to, um, I hope my art does that for some people. And it will. That's what it's all about. It will.
1: Like when you pour your grief into something, as well as the other broad range of feelings, then your audience, they, like, we feel that. We feel it. And that's one of the main ways I think most humans can experience the full body of emotions is by through the emotion you're putting into your work, the feeling that you put into it. And it's like this tool that artists have, you have this tool that you were born with, I think that you were born with that helps you understand and and be alive and make sense of things that are completely incomprehensible, like a friend dying so young. And so this tool that you have, not everybody has, and and artists can forget this because artists usually know mostly other artists. So you (laughs) think, well, everybody has this, everybody does this. They don't, most people are not artists. Artists are actually a small part of the world. LA is just chock full of artists and artists, yeah. like I said, tend to know a ton of other artists community, but like this gift that you have, that's not universal and right. activating that, letting that be in service of your own process of grief and living. It's like, it's honoring the thing that you have. And then it's this huge act of generosity then to share that with other people. Cause that's going to then help them live.
0: Yeah. I was, I just had therapy before this and I was talking about like this exact thing. And I'm like, wait, so other people aren't this sensitive, emotional and like always wanting to like ask why and be introspective and like, think about the universe. My therapist was like, no, most people don't want to do that. That's like too much for most people. Yeah.
1: It's really overwhelming. Most people are not trying to have, um, reflective contemplative lives.
0: (laughs) That's literally all I do all day. (laughs) that is reflect. Um, yeah, I will say like, I, at least in this moment, I'm like, not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of losing someone again. Mm-hmm. Like that is my biggest fear. It's not because yeah. I'm like, oh, dying feels easy compared to loss.
1: To living after somebody's death. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause you know yeah. what acute grief is like, it is so destabilizing. It's so confusing. It's so bewildering and grief takes people on such a wild ride. It's really, yeah. hard. it's difficult. It's really, and experiencing death during the pandemic, my, my, my wife had two deaths in her family at the beginning oh of the quarantine and, v- and then more recently. And the, the sort of like heavy clo- dampening cloak that's on it is that people can't have the kind of communal grieving that they normally would access to help them have markers and movement. Um, so that makes grief that's happened mm-hmm. in the past 12, 13 months, all the more destabilizing because we don't have the things we might usually turn to, to have comfort and movement through the experience.
0: Totally. It's like, we don't have our normal routine. We don't have like our normal schedule, first of all. And also I didn't realize how beneficial funeral services or memorial services are. You know, I'm sure you know a lot about this through your research, but it's like, you know, every culture has their own way, their own version of a funeral because it's community- Gathering to acknowledge this thing, and when you don't have that, I didn't realize how important yeah. having some sort of ritual or practice around death is until now. And I'm like, oh, so this is why yeah. funerals and memorial services and, and you know whatever every different religion and culture do, it's so important.
1: Yeah. Um, Ritualizing death is so important.
0: It's so important, and it's definitely something I've taken for granted until we couldn't have it anymore until COVID and like other things you're like, Oh, this thing that I took for granted, is no longer there. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just what a wild, wild year. Um, I also, I was listening to your podcast. You talked about make space for the thing. I love that phrase. Um, you have any like tips and tricks or, advice on how to make space for the thing the thing being your art what you love to do Mm -hmm. um how do you do that
1: I think especially with big projects or something that wants to come out of you to turn up the volume on that we might have to turn the volume down on other things not forever just temporarily so I think for a listener who's like, I have this project I really want to make, and I I have not devoted the time it's going to require for me to really get into it. The first thing to do is just look to what can you turn down or off temporarily? What commitments can you reduce your relationship to? What in your life can go from perfect to imperfect temporarily so that you can free up more hours and more internal capacity to redirect toward this thing that's important to you. Because whatever we feed is what will grow. If we don't feed the project that you want to make, it's not going to happen, especially for people who are making things where it's just coming from you or where you're the driver. No one's going to come make you do it. Nobody is ever going to ask you to do it. They're not going to make you do it. They're not going to give you a deadline that means anything to you. And so rather than thinking I should be able to do the 100,000 things I do in a week and this, maybe I got to shave off some of these other things and redirect some hours in interior space to this thing. So when I was writing this book, and I wrote this in 2019, so there's no COVID anything in the book, but one of the chapters is about time. And I talk about this very thing of like one of the primary things artists grapple with in my practice is their relationship to time and not having enough of it or always feeling like they're not spending it correctly or just basically their existential dread about time. And I wrote about the things I gave up temporarily so that I could devote more time to writing this book because I had a deadline and I, and I still had my job. Like I still had a lot of other things. And some of them were, um, I'm active in my Jewish community and I didn't go to several retreats that I wanted to go to. I had friends mm-hmm. who wanted to visit. And I said, no, you can't visit me till I submit my book because my office would also be the guest room. And I, I just needed the time and psychic space to write this manuscript. So I had to actively say no to things that I wanted to do so that I could say yes to this other thing, rather than having that illusion that I can do it all, all the time, because that's not sustainable. And for right. big durational projects, you need sustainable methods. It's like, sure, I-, I could I could force something and have an unmanageable schedule for a week or two, but I couldn't do that for six months.
0: Right, right. And it's about like, well, one, you have to know what you value and what can maybe take a pause. And then also remembering that, like you said, it's temporary and that, not- we are ever evolving, ever changing. And and these things don't have to stay the same. You can turn something down and just to turn it back up again a little bit later, um, which I think is really important to remember. Um, Did you, you as we're wrapping up, have you ever received a piece of advice or maybe you thought of it yourself? I mean, you're a brilliant author. So have you, Do you have anything that you would like to relay to people who are looking to build their confidence, Mm. any little nugget, whether it's like a practice that you do. I know a lot of people do morning pages, Mm -hmm. um, or something you heard one time or just anything that, that you could relay about confidence.
1: One of my favorite things to talk to people about is money. That's a, that's a big Mm. thing I deal with, with my clients is their relationship to money, repairing and establishing a relationship to personal finance the emotional, behavioral, psychological relationship to money, and then the actual financial literacy that maybe, that most of us don't get in our families or in schools. And when I, when I left a full-time job in 2007 to go working freelance in the art world, I had another mentor, actually, a grant writing mentor, and I asked her, she was a woman in her, I think, probably late 50s, early 60s, and I said, how do you set a price? Like, how do you know how much to ask for, for anything? Mm. And she said, and I have given this advice out ever since, say as much money as you can manage with a straight face. That's my advice. When you don't know what to ask for, how much to ask for, how much to charge, as much as you can say with a straight face.
0: I love that. As much money as you can say with a straight face. That's so, hearing that makes me nervous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I'm an artist or a woman, but I'm like, in my head, I want to be like, um, you know, in your budget or, you know, uh, you, know yeah. you know, what do you think is best when it's yeah. like, there's no, so many layers of socialization
1: work. that teach people yeah. not to ask for money or to accept not very much. I mean, there's gender and race and And industry artists are definitely socialized to be like, oh, you're not ever gonna get paid. And so, when people hear that over and over, then it doesn't occur to them that they can. And in fact, they should. And we actually have to shape that culture of, yes, we compensate people for the work that they do. And that, and that a person doesn't, the things they do for free earlier in their career, that that can and should shift.
0: Right. Yes, exactly. It's like when you're beginning your career versus when you're, establishing you've put so much time and energy into your craft your time and your talent is worth compensation we've decided that our world is is you know a capitalist society where money is valued and uh so we got to live that you know um even as an artist um so i'm going to recap the notes that i've been (laughs) taking, and um you can please correct me on any of these i don't want to um misconstrue or misinterpret them so i love a note so don't be afraid um okay unshakable soul acceptance one day at a time practice accept your past selves i loved that surround yourself with confident friends be a part of something bigger independent go to places where you're being reflected accurately find a place with like-minded individuals see possibility models around you i loved that uh there are paths for you detransition baby is the book that uh was mentioned um reflection of you in the world around you go to the places you want to be talk to your friends and your community practice non attachment do what's in your power and then let it go um what's my handwriting we count we can't, oh <laughs> we can't control people places or things i loved that quote get a mentor I mean, you've talked about mentors multiple times. I think that's so important and valuable. Ask for what you need. I give help. I ask for help. Start a death practice. Start a death journal. How am I, how am I living? Um, and how do I want to live? The Order of the Good Death. is that a, That's another book? Okay.
1: Oh, that's a, it's, know- a, it's a group. It's an organization. On, oh, it's a they group. have a website, okay. Order of the Good Death.
0: Okay. I wrote that down. I know I'm going to die. So how do I want to live? Honestly, love that. You can turn the volume up and down on things to get stuff done. And that's temporary. It can be temporary repair and establish your relationship with money. Say as much money as you can with a straight face. (laughs) Is there anything that you want to change or add?
1: Uh, no, that's great. We covered so much territory in a conversation, just listening to those notes. And actually my I homework know. club in May and June, we're doing two months on money. So if people join before May, they they can attend those workshops. The first month, the workshop is going to be about um, our individual socialization with money from our families, our identities, um, our behavioral, emotional, psychological relationship to money. And then part two in June is going to be tactical. Like, okay, so what do we do? What's the math of it all? What do you do with money? How do you do better things with money? What about my debt? What about retirement? All those yeah. kinds of questions.
0: And that's so important for artists. Cause we're like, we don't know, <laughs> or at yeah. least I am. I'm like,
1: most artists feel bewildered and overwhelmed and then they think everyone else has it figured out and i can tell you no most people also feel bewildered and overwhelmed
0: and there's there's
1: answers there's paths out of that
0: yeah it sounds like may and june are good months to to figure it out yeah it's just like i i had a reading with a psychic the other day and um She talked about like, what do you want more of and what do you want less of? And we did like candle work around it. And one of the the things I wanted more of, I was like money. And I was like, but the way I phrased it, I was like, I feel weird saying this, but I want money. And then she was like, no. And we like did a whole talk about it and uh, about how we don't have to have this weird relationship with money where we're like, it's evil. You know, it doesn't have to always be like
1: that. We project things onto it. It's just a resource. And it yeah, can be activated yes. for really good things. Money can do very good, powerful things in people's lives. And the more, like for people who are very thoughtful people, the more money you have, the more of those wonderful, good things you could do with the money.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Beth. This has thank been. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much for having me on your podcast and for doing this project. It's so great. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's been, it's just been wonderful. I've learned so much more than I ever thought I would. Um, where can people find you?
1: Um, My website is bethpickens.com. And my books are anywhere fine books are found. My podcast is called Mind Your Practice, wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm on Instagram where I dole out lots of free free advice at Beth Pickens Consulting.
0: Love it. Thank you again. And um,
1: we will talk soon. Excellent. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of How the Fuck Did You Get So Confident? Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And you can also head over to patreon.com howthefuck for bonus episodes, video content, and more. Thanks again.